take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, um, verse 14. And we continue in a sermon from last week, part one last week, part two this week, a reason for prayer, a reason for prayer. And as you remember, in verse 14, the Apostle Paul is really picking up where he left off in Ephesians 3, verse 1. If you notice in Ephesians 3, verse 1, he begins with the words, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's a break in his train of thought. He chases a, as I said last week, chases a holy rabbit, an inspired rabbit. He, he couldn't go past saying that he was the prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. He then felt it incumbent on himself to explain what he meant by that. And, and so we have verses 1 through 13. He goes into a long, in-depth explanation about being the prisoner of Christ for the Gentiles. And then he picks right up in verse 14. Having accomplished what he desired to do there, his heart overflowing really, now begins to turn back to his original purpose in chapter 3, which was to pray. He says again in verse 14, for this reason. He repeats his beginning. And remember, when we talked about it, what reason was it that he was praying? Well, he was praying because he was praying to God who has sovereignly planned all things. You don't pray unless you believe in the sovereignty of God. Anyone who prays in their act of praying is professing belief in the sovereignty of God. Whether they would say that or not, whether they would deny or not, when they open their mouth to pray, they are professing belief in sovereignty. Why else would you pray? If he's no more powerful to influence and change the things in this world than we are, then we need to talk amongst ourselves, come up with a game plan and go about the work. But if he's sovereign and if he has planned, then we rightly bow our knee and pray to him that he do what he wills and he use us to accomplish his will. So Paul, convinced thoroughly of the sovereignty of God, that was one reason we mentioned last week, began to pray. Also, he was convinced of his need of the person he was praying to. Paul was convinced he needed God. He wasn't talented enough on his own. He wasn't gifted enough on his own to affect change in the lives of the people at Ephesus. He particularly could not accomplish that since he is in prison. You remember now, he writes this letter separated by thousands of miles and imprisoned. It's not like he could get on the next chartered flight from Rome back to Ephesus to talk with them. Even if he had not been in prison, separated by thousands of miles, he would have to have someone carry or he would have to walk back there. So it would take months. Travel was not easy. He had to depend on God. He needed God. So the reason for prayer was he believed in a sovereign God and he believed he needed that sovereign God. Most of us don't pray as we should. And I believe it's because we have way too much confidence in our own abilities. We don't understand our need of God, and we don't truly believe God to be sovereign. If we believed that, we would pray. Paul's letters are saturated in prayer. He spent more time praying, probably, than he did preaching or doing anything else. The testimony of men like George Whitfield is extremely, um, extremely convicting for me. George Whitfield, the traveling Methodist preacher, circuit rider of his day, 
mainly in Georgia, uh, to prisoners. He preached and he prayed. This was his whole life. He sometimes preached as many as 16 hours a day. You think I preach a long message? 16 hours a day. Sometimes to as many as six congregations. He never took a voyage back to England, but what he didn't pick up the Word of God and preach to the people on the ship. I, I sometimes think in my mind, did anyone listen? You know? Or was he just preaching? People doing what they want to do. He's just preaching, you know? He was one of those kind of guys. He did two things well. He preached and he saturated his preaching in prayer. And I see in that a submission to the holy God of heaven. It did him no good to preach for 16 hours lest the Holy Spirit move on men's lives. He was wasting air and time. And he recognized that. He recognized that. And so I think we are confessing by our lack of prayer, a lack of the true belief in the sovereignty of God, and also overconfidence in our abilities. And we just need to confess that and repent of it. So we covered that last week in verses 14 through 16a. And we saw that the other reason for prayer is not just that He's sovereign and has planned, not just that we need Him, but that it is His glory that we seek. It's His glory that we seek. Whether it be in the ministry of the local church or the family life or business, whatever we might be about or doing, we are seeking God's glory in all of it. Look what it says there in verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, His glory is the power by which we operate and do ministry, and it is for His glory that we do what we do. It's all about His glory. His glory supplies the energy for our work, and our work is in glory to Him. It's not adding to His glory. Remember the confession this morning. That's not a contradiction to say that our work glorifies God. They're not saying that that's not true. What they're saying is you can't make God more glorious by doing your work. But, oh, His His glory is shown brightly when His children obey and worship and serve and live godly, obedient lives. His glory is magnified on the earth, made evident to all around. So Paul's given us plenty of good reason for prayer. In this message, and I'll give you the three points, they run like a sentence. The first point we'll cover will be, we pray because we are totally dependent on... Not just dependent on any God, but on the Trinitarian God of the Bible. We are dependent on the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Secondly, we pray that we may have strength through the Spirit. And finally, we will cover today, we pray that we may have strength through the Spirit and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, it's my task to cover that. Just a few verses, but there's so much here. His prayers are as dense as his theological thinking. Have you ever finished praying and thought, boy, that was shallow? That reflects shallow study and theology. If you want to pray deeply, you need to study deeply. You need to know God deeply. You, you, you've been around people, right? And I have too, where they pray, and it's not so much what they say, I mean how they say it, it's what they say. That you get a peek into the window and say, that person knows who God is. Just by the way they pray. Paul was one of those people. 
I imagine that his guards in Rome got a heavy dose of his prayer life. And I can't help but think as they marched him to death, they thought, he's dying, but he knows God. I'm not sure I believe in his God, but he believes in that God. Why? Because he was on his knees praying often. In the very posture of his prayer, we see the submission. That bowing, I bow my knee. We talked about that a little last time, and I want to pick it up and lead into. What he's doing when he bows the knee is he is putting himself under the authority of the Trinitarian God of the Bible. The common way for Hebrew people to pray was what? Standing, eyes lifted up, hands often turned upward to heaven. This was a common way to pray. And we see that in uh, that coming out even in the New Testament. First Timothy, remember, Paul says that he calls on holy men to lift up holy hands in prayer for kings. And, and he goes through the list. But that's that he's calling on. It's not something new he's invented. This is the posture of prayer that they inherited from the people of old. But there were times in the Old Testament when people were broken, humbled, submissive at the end of their supply in need of great supply from God, where you find them where? Laying in the dust, begging God to intervene. This is where Paul is. Paul bows the knee, and in that Statement. It really wraps up last week's sermon. Just in saying, how did Paul pray? What posture did he assume he bowed the knee? When we say that, we say he believed in a sovereign God who has a plan and he's in need of him. The whole sermon last week is preached through his posture. And I would say the same about this week. That bow the knee is a, is a clause describing to us the reasons to pray. In itself, in the way he sh- places himself physically, we see the need for prayer. We are praying because we are in total dependence on the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Now, where do I see that? Well, look at the prayer in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Okay? Before the Father. Verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, second person mentioned in the Trinity here, in your inner being, so that Christ, third person, here it is, He's praying in all, in all of His prayers, He's focusing Himself on the Trinitarian nature of God. And you say, what is it? Why do you keep saying that? Because we're not praying to just any God. We're praying to the God of the Bible. And he's very, there is no other God like our God. There is no other God like our God. There are other religious systems which claim that God manifests himself in many ways or that there are many gods or that God's spirit indwells everything. We, we have those pantheistic type of religions. We have Buddhism and Hinduism, which talks about a God or several gods. But we have no religion. We have nothing to mimic the Bible, which claims and professes and preaches and lives a theology that's based around God in three persons, forever one and blessed. We, we have no other system like it. God in three persons, forever one. And blessed. We, we don't see that anywhere else. 
And so he is bowing the knee before this Trinitarian God. Why? Because it is all three persons of the Trinity that secured for Paul and for his fellow Christians in Ephesus all that they needed. This God of the Bible, all three persons secure what is needed for life. Grace of God is not just what saves you, it's what sustains you. It's what preserves you. It's what carries you into glory. I have a suspicion that most in this room, many in this room, live life like this. God saved me by grace. He will ultimately glorify me by His grace. But everything in the middle is dependent on me. You wouldn't say that. You would, you would find that repulsive to say. But if we followed each other around all day, every day, we would see that's the pattern of life. God saved me by grace. It's all about grace. When, when we die, it's only by grace that God's going to make us like Christ. But everything between salvation and death for most Christians practically comes out like hard work. Dependent on my strength and my energy and my ability. How do we know that's the case? Carlton, you can't say that about me. Sure I can because I know me. And I don't think I'm much different than many of you, am I? And the reality is, we see that we don't believe grace is what carries us daily, moment by moment, because we rarely bow our knees. We make decisions every day as if God has no part in those decisions. As if, God, you saved me, made me your child, and you're one day going to make me perfect like your son, my Savior. But right here and now, it's up to me. We don't bow the knee. Paul bows the knee, and he does that because he is in total dependence on the Father. The Father has planned Chapter 1 has planned all things that they be summed up in Christ, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. If that be the case, I've got to pray. I don't have a plan that will work. God has a plan that will work. I don't have an idea or solution. God has ideas and solutions, and so I seek Him in prayer. And then we see that He's not only the planner or the architect or the designer... But He is the one who issues forth the Spirit that is our strength. God, having saved us by His sovereign will, now gives to us His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, indeed, is the one who made our hearts alive. So Paul says in this prayer, talking to believers, by the way, in verse 16, that God grants to us strength with power through His Spirit. Through His Spirit. So God has indwelt us now with His Spirit. When did this happen? At our conversion. At our salvation. At the moment He made our hearts from stone to flesh. Which caused faith. Which was a gift from Him. That's when this happened. This initial indwelling that we see here in the passage so the father he's praying to the father through the spirit that 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 all things that god would grant his spirit to give us all strength and power so that christ dwells in us by faith so we have the third person 
The Spirit being the helper. The one who reveals Christ to us. The one who reveals God's Word to us. The one who enlightens our minds. The one who calls our hearts to repentance. The one who enlivens our conscience to know something is sin or not. That's the Holy Spirit. The Father having planned it all. Designed it all. Purposed it all. Now the two of them make it so that Christ dwells in us by faith or through faith. He is the one who executes this plan. Brings about this helper. Carries out the will of His Father in your life and in my life. Indeed, in all of the world, the will of the Father is carried out through Christ by the Spirit. We see how they work together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's Jesus Christ who pours out the Spirit on the church. So the church is gifted in every way. What is the gift of Christ to the church? It's not, specifically, it's not uh, speaking in tongues, healing, uh, teaching, administration, and you list the list. Some say four, some say nine, some say thirteen. I think this whole debate about spiritual gifts misses the point. The gift of God through Christ His Son to the church is the Spirit. That's the gift. And He manifests Himself, Himself, and this Trinitarian God in and through us by gifting us for specific situations in specific moments of time. So I kind of think, as I've grown now and thought about it more, I think it's a little bit of a waste of time for you or I to take a bubble-in test to find out what our spiritual gift is. Why? Because what we have received is the Spirit of God. So much so that He, he shows Himself in manifest ways. People build up pride over spiritual gifts because they have forgotten the gift is the Spirit. And they think they possess the gift. I'm a good preacher. I'm gifted with administration. If you were more like me, your life would be organized. That's fooey. That's hogwash. What you have is the Spirit of God. When in any situation is necessary and He chooses to use you, He can gift you in that moment through the power of the Holy Spirit to do whatever is according to His plan and will. And then it's not you who's glorified because what they say is, I've never seen Carlton in that manner. How is he this way today? Oh, it's only by God and His gracious Holy Spirit. Now we glorify God, not a man not a woman, not a particular gift. So here Paul prays. And he prays this Trinitarian player. Oh, oh God, our Father. It is through your glory, particularly your planned sovereign will, that you grant to your church the Spirit, which gives and supplies them strength and power. Notice he's not saying exactly what the Spirit should do for them. He's not in the mode of, they need more preachers over there in Ephesus. God, give them more preachers. God, they need more people to organize. Give them the ministries. He just says, give them the Spirit, the strength and power of God on high. That's what they need. That's what I need. That's what you need, isn't it? This is how Jesus prayed. And this is how He commanded that you and I to pray. How did He end His teachings on prayer? He said, pray that what? He would give you more of the Spirit. That's what we're to be praying for. 
Because it's in having the Spirit in this moment, submitted to Him by bowing the knee, that I know whether I should buy this house or not buy this house. I shouldn't be praying for the house. Pray for the Spirit. Oh, God, give me wisdom here. I don't know what to do. It's in having the Spirit controlling my life that I know whether I should or should not marry. Whether I should or should not take the job. Whether I should or should not go on a trip for missions. Whether I should or should not. Everything. You say, that's spiritualizing it. The whole life is to be spiritual. So all the way down to whether I buy a cup of coffee or not should be submitted to God. All of it. And pray. the only way that happens is that He come in strength and power into us, into our hearts, into our lives. And the only way that happens is if we forget this silly notion of God saves us by grace and glorifies us by grace, but we're sanctifying ourselves by our own power. Paul knows the greatest need of Ephesus and Grace Fellowship is this, that we bow our knee before a sovereign God who has planned all things according to His will to bring all things in submission to Himself in Christ. Now, God, please give us Your Spirit that we might have the strength and power to do Your will. So Your will would come on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer. Paul is modeling for us, again, the disciples' prayer. It's in different words. It's in a new context. But it's the same prayer. He's hallowed God's name, and now he has called that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven by the power and strength of the Spirit. But where is this happening? Where is this power and strength residing? In the Spirit, where? In our inner being. In our inner being. Now there's some debate about this. I side on the side that this is not speaking about the regenerate um, new creation as much as it is speaking about, though I think that obviously has occurred, they're believers. But this is actually the inner being is like the inner seat of the man, the human. It is his mind, his will, his conscience. It is all of who the man, the essence of who he is. That's where the Spirit of God goes into and works. He definitely makes his, the man a new creature. But it is specifically in the inner man that he works. Where do I get an idea like that? Well, from Paul, 2 Corinthians. Hold your place in Ephesians. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And let's read this paragraph. It might help enlighten us. Beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Talking about his ministry here. To the church. Through our, though our outer self, our outer man, is wasting away, our inner self, our inner being, is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is wasting away? Our physicalness, our flesh, our body is wasting away. I don't have to tell you that, do I? I mean, that's just a fact. No one would deny that. 
Whether you're here imperfect as far as you know health or not, the older you get, the less strength you have, the less stamina you have. Your body, no matter how hard you try, cannot stop the process of breaking down. So Paul says, I'm getting old. And beyond getting old, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've slept little, I've ate less, and my body's dying. Paul had no fountain of youth. He's dying. He didn't deny death. He didn't see it as something uh, that was alien to a believer who truly had faith in God. No, he saw it as a fact. This body's going to die, and it's degrading every day. But, what's happening to him? His inner man is being strengthened. What is being strengthened? Well, Romans 12 says that he's been renewing his mind by the Word of God. Presenting to God his spiritual sacrifice, which is that inner man, the will, the conscience, the mind, the heart, the seat of who the man is. He's been presenting that to God. And as he does, God in 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 Vigorates, empowers, infuses, bursts forth through his spirit power and strength. That that man, though his outer man's dying, becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And what is it that the confession says will live forever? Our souls will live forever. What does the confession mean by soul? Heart, mind, will, seat of the man. That's what it means. God has blessed us with that, and it will not cease to exist. When you die, whether with Him or not, you, your soul will last forever. And so we have here a prayer that's based around the Trinity, calling on all persons of the Trinity to execute the plan that God has designed from before the foundation of the world to bring all things in submission under Him, Christ, who is all in all, And he's asking specifically that the Spirit would strengthen and empower the inner being, the mind, the will, the conscience, the soul, we might say, of the man. Empower it, strengthen it, renew it, make it more and more alive, God. That's what they need. He didn't pray for gifts. He didn't pray for, for, for physical pleasure or physical ease. He prayed that this inner man would be renewed. Even as their outer man wastes away, I would say. So his inner man is being renewed. Here's what he's praying. Oh God, the reason for prayer is that we can't renew the inner man. Of our own power and strength, we can't do it. The soul is enwrapped in sin by nature. Just like the body. And unchanged by the Holy Spirit, your soul degrades further and further and further. Graceful aging is not natural to man. What happens as you get older is you get more crotchety. Naturally, you get more pessimistic. You get more embittered. You get more angry. You have a shorter and shorter attention span and inhibitor fluid. The attention span shuts off when someone says something I don't like and the inhibitor fluid is no longer at the right level, so I say what's in my mind. That's what happens as you get older. Your soul, your inner man wastes away, just like the natural man, body. But what happens when the Spirit of God has made you alive and is now working on your inner being? That inner man goes the opposite direction of the physical man. 
so that you grow in grace. Your mind becomes more captivated by the Word of God. You ever been around those older saints that you can be talking about anything and they won't talk about the Bible? You, 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 you want to talk about the football game? They start off talking about the football game and somehow they're over on justification by faith alone by the end of the conversation. How do we get there? They're just wrapped up in God and in who He is and how He has made them who they are by His grace. They're caught in that. And Paul's praying that all the believers at Ephesus would be that person. That they would be strengthened and empowered in their inner man, made more and more like Christ. But we don't want to leave, we're going to finish up here, but we don't want to leave without saying, what does it mean? We pray that we may have strength through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts by, through faith. I mean, Carlton, you might say, or Paul, I might and you might say, they're Christians, isn't Christ in them? yes. Yes, but it's very important what words the Apostle Paul uses. He uses the word here to indicate he had the choice of two words. They're both translated dwell. The first word would have meant that a person is dwelling in a country that is foreign to them. They are sojourning. This, this verb is used about our forefather Abraham. As he goes into the promised land, he went into a land that was not his by birthright. It was a foreign land to him, but he went in and he sojourned all the days of his life. Right? God had promised it to him, but the promise was not yet fulfilled in his life. So he was living in somebody else's land perpetually all the rest of his life. Okay? That would be one word for dwell. But that's not the word he chooses. He chooses the word which means to dwell, to live in that which you already possess. Somebody taking up residence in a home they have purchased. So it's like a man buys a home. It's his home at the moment he bought it. And now as he's moving into it, he's taking further and further control of that home. Right? I think of it like this. It, it, it's a break. All analogies break down. Okay, maybe this will help you. I'm simple-minded. Maybe this will help you if you're like me. You buy a home that is in complete and utter disrepair and falling apart. The moment you buy the home, it's your home. But it is in an unlivable condition, in a sense. It's yours. You own it. You even begin to live in it, but it's in total disrepair. Right? The problem's not with the owner, the problem's with the house. And what happens over time? As that owner lives in the home, what does he do? He repairs the home. He invokes his authority over all the things in the home. So that he rewires, replums, re-roofs, puts down new floor, paints all the walls, adds to the outside. He takes domain over the property, cutting the grass, trimming the hedges, cutting down trees, making a new deck. He begins to renovate what he owns. What Paul's asking would happen in the heart of the Ephesians, who are already possessed and owned by God, is that his power and strength in the Spirit, which is in the inner man, 
would begin to exhibit Christ through faith in and through them. Not that they would be saved a second time or blessed in some super um, spiritual way, we might say, but rather that the reality might become so real that they, his possession of them begins to show outwardly. So Paul is praying that the church would look like Christ. That's really what he's praying. Oh God, Father, you have planned and you've brought these things about by your sovereign will. Now please bless your church with the Holy Spirit. Notice he's blessing the church with the Holy Spirit. The church has the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? That his power and strength might renovate them that they look like Christ by faith. This is his prayer for the church of Ephesus and is his prayer for us. That we would look more and more like Christ. We see this word dwell. Just to prove that, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in Colossians chapter 1. That he chose this word and he means what I said he means by it. Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God, talking about Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that word dwell is the same one in our text. So what happened? When baby Jesus was born, he had the full Godhead in him, dwelling in him, because it pleased God that that be the case. But what does Luke say happened to our Lord? He grew in wisdom and stature. How does God grow? Because he's possessed of God, the fullness of God, but his humanity, his, his inner being, which was not affected by sin, okay, is not the exact same. His inner man wasn't affected by sin, but yet it matured and grew and became more and more, his outward being became more and more in line with that which was unseen. Even without sin, this process would have taken place in Adam. He would have become more and more and more like God. So, sin enters, and now we have a real problem, don't we? I mean, let's set Christ aside because we don't parallel Him. Let's set innocent Adam aside because we're not Him. We're fallen Adam. So now how much greater is the transformation that must take place and renovation in a fallen and sinful heart? So the fullness of God dwells in the Spirit. Christ dwells in us. And as he dwells, he takes more and more rightful ownership and renovation over who we are. So much so that when you were saved, ten years later, you would say, I'm not like that person that I was saved. I'm just not like him. I'm, I'm different now. I have different desires, different tongue, different mind, different heart, different desires, completely different. And you think, man, I've arrived, right? No. Ten years from that ten-year point, at twenty years, you look back and say... Well, that guy was so immature. I was so crazy back then. I had so little of God, so little of Christ. So much so that 20 years from that 20-year mark, at 40 years of being a believer, you're more like Christ. Never reaching full perfection until glory, but by His grace becoming more like Him. So that's what Paul's praying for his church in Ephesus. That God would, by His plan, sovereignty, through the Spirit, the power and strength, make Christ dwell more richly in the inner man. John had this same prayer. Last, last word for the day. Revelation chapter 3. 
one of those abused texts of the Bible. How many VBSs have closed with this passage to the Laodiceans? Laodicea had a church, and Paul writes not to Laodicea, the community, but, I mean, John writes, has a prayer, has the words of Christ, particularly, to the church, not the people in the city. And look what he says. We won't read it all, but look in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Little children, come back forward and pray to receive Christ because he's knocking on the door of your heart. No, that's not an altar call verse. That's not a get saved verse. That's a verse to the saved. That Christ is with them and loves them and is disciplining them tells me in this text He's talking to believers. Christ is knocking at the door. What what in the world is going on here? Simply this. The owner desires to take more and fuller residence of the one he possesses. And the warning to Laodicea is... Come to the door and open it. Bow your knee to Him. Let Him renovate you. Because the one who conquers will live. How do they conquer? Because more and more every day they submit to the one who owns them. And He fully possesses them. This text, I think, is a good parallel to our text. So I would say to you and to myself... He's knocking. I'm convinced the heart, the seat in this text, the heart is that inner being. I'm convinced the inner being has all types of nooks and crannies that have doors to which Christ through the Spirit is knocking. We've got locked away inside ourselves as believers, little places we don't want to give up domain and control over. He has the title deed on that nook and the cranny. He owns the door He's knocking at. But what a gentle and loving God that He doesn't kick the door in, but rather He woos and draws and calls you through discipline. Be careful though. This is the warning. He's knocking at those places this morning. And my prayer for myself and for you, and I think Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is, open the door. That he may come into that place and sup and eat and have relationship in that area. Whatever that area may be. I don't want to get too specific because that lets others off the hook. That's not my problem. Glad he's talking to somebody else. No. It's, they, they exist in all of us. These places. And so my warning to you, my encouragement would be open the door. Willingly bow the knee and say come in and renovate this part. Take it. Possess it. Live here. You're the Lord. That's my urging. My warning is if you don't do it, He will not grow weary of disciplining you until you do it. He won't give up. 
He will not cease until he has full authority over every part of your inner man. Why? Because he won't cease in the last day to raise up your body and make it new. He won't cease to make the inner man new either. It's coming, in other words. It's coming. So bow the knee and give it to him. Don't force the hand of God in disciplining you, Jacob, until your hip be broken. Until the heart fears to see the face of your brother that he might kill me. Don't be, Jacob. Be quick to open the door. Be quick to open the door. Oh, God, may you come on this congregation. Starting with the elders and moving through the congregation. To open the door of our heart. In every place, may you take up residence and rule and reign. Until your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer.